Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulia University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we continue our discussion that we started last week with Dr. Jack West from City of Hope. But before we roll to that episode, which I am very excited for, I'm also curious to know, Vivek, how was your Chipotle adventure last week? It was so good. And, you know, the key thing was it was carb heavy. You got to do the tortilla, man. The tortilla is so good. I'm one of the few. I'm one of the few. How do you feel about cilantro lime rice? Is that your thing? Or do you go for the, is the brown rice the other option? You know, I go for the cilantro lime. That's just, that's my thing. I know I know it's not as healthy, but I'm not going to Chipotle for the health. I mean, it's got a ton of sodium, so not not a place for health, but still, yeah, love Chipotle. Chipotle, remember, we're looking for sponsors. The way inflation's been going, two bucks for avocado seems pretty reasonable. So, like, what? Yeah. How can you complain? Yeah, I agree. Maybe maybe they're gonna keep their avocado and their guacamole like the Costco 150 hot dog that they've had for like a million years maybe it's inflation proof so only time will tell but guys we should not keep our listeners waiting from another great episode with dr west so let's go and roll the show all right so let's move on past the early stage lung cancer treatments and let's talk a little bit about metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and it is crazy that when you went into this field that the question was, should we even give treatment in the metastatic setting? And now we're here debating all these complicated nuances. When you're a fellow, you're like, how, where are we? That There's so many things that just came out. I have no idea how to frame this. I'll say <laughs> that now the debates are around, are we potentially curing some patients with yeah. metastatic disease, whether yeah. it's with oligometastatic disease who get local therapy or patients who are going years and years on targeted therapies or especially immunotherapy where we sometimes stop it and can see patients with sustained benefit, no progression years after they've ended it. I mean, that's to me amazing to go from, should we be bothering or, you know, is the treatment worse than the disease to, are we potentially curing patients with metastatic disease, which was one of the truisms of what wasn't possible not that long ago. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And and we're lucky because we start out with being like, yeah, we can cure oligometastatic disease. Uh, and, and I remember at, what my first patient with lung cancer in my, in my clinic was oligometastatic brain metastasis that I had as a first-year fellow. Now as a third-year fellow, the patient's still in CR and doing great. And it's just crazy to see that that progression. But uh, I just want to present a case and ask you a couple of questions about metastatic disease. So let's say we have a 58-year-old female non-smoker with a 3.4 centimeter left lower lobe adenocarcinoma on histology. She also had a 9 millimeter left upper lobe mass, a left hilar node, adrenal metastases, and multiple brain metastases. So previously, in our previous episodes, we discussed the importance of the PDL1 TPS score. I remember that TPS for thoracic TPS and molecular testing to identify driver mutations in patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. In your opinion, do you send molecular testing, this NGS testing, on the biopsy, the peripheral blood, or both? Well, uh, the yield is highest from the biopsy, from tissue. Uh, You're going to the source. And while we've had 
a lot of advances in just a few years in in liquid biopsy, you know, doing uh, plasma testing. Uh, the sensitivity is not quite as great, uh, but it also depends on the tumor burden, not tumor mutational burden, but the actual burden of cancer. So it's worth remembering that if someone has plural nodules, but a really low volume of disease or a plural effusion that's drained, and that's how you identify uh, advanced disease, but they they really have just a few lung nodules, that's somebody who may not have a great yield of circulating tumor cells uh, or circulating DNA. Um, the the uh, the case of someone who has multiple liver metastases is different. That's someone where we'd really expect that uh, a liquid biopsy is going to have a high yield on on uh, circulating tumor DNA. But uh, in general, I mean, we need to today get tissue to make the diagnosis. And ideally, uh, once you do that, I'm sending off uh, that tissue for molecular testing, at least in a patient who has a non-squamous histology. I think you can debate whether to do that on someone who's a longtime smoker with squamous histology. If they have minimal or no smoking history, and squamous, I would still send the test, but in somebody who's smoking in your waiting room uh, and has squamous cancer, I think I wouldn't necessarily, I think it's debatable. The pretest probability is pretty low, but we are lowering our threshold to to do that testing in just about everyone with advanced disease, advanced non-small cell, because you never know. Uh, in any event, I send the the test on uh, or NGS on on uh, tissue if someone does not have sufficient tissue or if somebody may we we have them quite symptomatic they're getting worse every week uh if i'm getting a sense that it's going to be two three more weeks till i have the result because i think that is one of the maddening aspects of of at least tumor tissue NGS is you send it off sometimes from you know if you're at a referring hospital etc it can be weeks before you have that. And if you send off plasma, you'll generally get the results inside of a week these days. So, and you can draw it and send it off that day. Uh, it's not like you have to do a biopsy that, you know, you can't get them into IR for 10 days. So uh, a, a plasma-based test has the advantage of being a uh, a fast turnaround and immediately available, whereas tissue you still have plenty of QNS you know reports that that even if you send it you don't have and then you incur more delays getting more i am not yet of a mind that we should be sending tissue and blood on everybody and and that's not to say that it's uh, a bad idea i work closely with a friend Charu Agarwal from Penn, who's been they as an institution, and she personally has been one of the real pioneers of and and promoters of this idea of doing, you know, belt and suspenders, test everything and everyone. And then you you increase your chances without delays. That's true, but these are not free. And I don't want I still think we live in a time when payers don't always cover uh, blood-based testing, maybe especially if you've also sent sent uh, uh, 
tumor tissue testing. So I don't want to stick a patient with a five, $6,000 bill for any of these. And so I'm, I'm a little more judicious. I think it's a great tool, uh, uh, blood-based testing, but I use it more as needed than in patients who, uh, you know, for everybody to get double. I will say it's also important to note that because the testing with, with plasma is not as uh, high sensitivity, if you get a negative test on, on plasma, especially in someone with lower volume and maybe there's no uh, there's no mutations reported, uh, that that doesn't necessarily mean they're negative as much as that was nothing detected and you could still find something if you do an, a, a tissue test. So it's worth just bearing in mind there's there's a potential for false negatives in any of these, including tissue, but more so with uh, blood-based testing. So, uh, you know, that is another reason to think about doing both if if you if you have that available so, without you know, costing uh, anybody. Related sort of to, to this, this molecular testing kind of discussion, you know, a, a lot of what we learned about, at least based on the current landscape of treatment of metastatic lung cancer, is about the role of IO therapy, uh, either with chemotherapy or or uh, with someone with PL one status greater than fifty percent IO alone. And so, I, my next question I have is actually in relation to that. So, you know, um, listeners, as we know, in general, we think about chemo and IO for PDL one um, when it's when the levels are less than fifty percent. So, Doctor Russ, we were curious. When do you consider the use of um, the ipinevo combination without chemotherapy in this group, if ever? And then, in general, you know, based on some of the data that we've seen, and I believe it was the Checkmate two two seven study that had suggested, you know, maybe a little bit of of crossover in the in the ipinevo group versus chemo group. So, just kind of trying to understand all of this data because it seems like ipinevo may be more toxic. I don't really have a clear use for ipinevo. I don't think it's a bad choice. It's a comparable choice. It's not clearly worse. But I think as a general concept, and I think this applies whether you're talking about how to approach metastatic lung cancer without a driver mutation or just about anything in oncology or maybe in medicine, uh, if you, you you look at it through the lens of, is what I'm seeing now incrementally better than what I'm already doing. And I think that incrementally better can be, is it significantly more effective? Is it significantly less toxic? Is it, does it work significantly better in the brain? Uh, for, at least for some of our targeted therapies where that itself may be a dis- differentiating factor. And also, is this just a lateral move, but less ex- less expensive? I mean, the concept of biosimilars or some agents that may be coming out of China that are not clearly better, but if they cost 60% of what these extraordinarily expensive drugs cost, why not do something that is a lateral move, but just costs the system way less? And it doesn't even have to be costing me or the patient less, but just why not why not lower the burden to society if we can because i i do think that we uh do need to think at some point not just about what's happening in the exam room but you know societal implications uh but ipinevo uh you know i i would say i became 
uh, impressed by, you know, the first data that we had in advanced disease first line was Keynote 024 for high PDL1. And then I would say the most compelling data in 2018 or so were with uh, chemo and pembrolizumab. And there have been a bunch of other things that have come out since then. The Keynote, I'm sorry, the uh, Checkmate 227 data were kind of trickling out along this time. Empower 150, which is carbopaclitaxel, Bev and Atezo, all fine choices. But are they clearly better than what we already have? And if you're comfortable with what you've got, you're you're these have very good data. They are arguably, you know, listed as preferred choices by the NCCN. So why would I necessarily change that? I, I would say that chemo-free is not toxicity-free. And I think that, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with predicting the side effects of the chemo-pembro combinations of, you know, carbo, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab, or carbo and ataxane and, and, and pembrolizumab for squames. I'm I'm a little more concerned about predicting the toxicity of ipinevo, where patients can end up hospitalized with colitis or something. It's on balance, probably about the same, but just to me, more idiosyncratic, which is not what I'm looking for. So uh, I would say it's not a wrong choice. And there's many, many ways to do this. You could give Checkmate 9LA, which is Nippy, uh, Nevo Ippy, and Chemo Doublet for two cycles. I mean, many, many ways to probably get to the same place. Um, and not none of these is a wrong choice, but I think the question is, if you have something that is what you're happy with, having one more combination that beats chemo alone is is damning with faint praise. That is, you know, a, that's a comparator arm from 2016 or 17, and all these later trials that show they still beat chemo alone is not a reason to change what you're doing. All right, and so you know, we understand that there's a, a lack of randomized trial data on using something like consolidative radiation after an IO-based treatment uh, in the metastatic setting. But if patients have had a good response to systemic treatment, when would you consider using uh, consolidated radiation in a sort of in a push for a cure? Is there like a cut point on the number of metastatic sites you target or, you know, like somebody with a single liver lesion, maybe that's something we could do or a single bone lesion, that's something we could do, but not if they have four or five. Uh, How do you think about that? I would say a few things. One is uh, any systemic therapy that is very effective and leaves you with, say, oligo-residual disease is a setting where I think it is a very reasonable idea. And the limited data are pretty consistent. I would say they're, they are quite limited. Um, and these are selected patients, but it is in NCCN guidelines, I think, appropriately as something to consider for the right uh, selected patient. I think these patients are more most likely to be those who have a great response to a targeted therapy, actually, or EGFR or ALK positive, and they get osimertinib or electinib, and they have one or two residual sites. But uh, in my mind, I would factor in a few things. I I do think that we need to distinguish between what a radiation oncologist says you can radiate and 
what you should do. I think this is really true. I mean, that I sometimes see patients getting stereotactic radio surgery for 16 brain metastases. And I would say that's that's really perverting the the data and the concept. I mean, yeah, you can do that. I mean, just the way you could say, well, everything is walkable if you have the time. But <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think that the concept that this is something that you can get ahead of with local therapy is really the question. And so if you have one or two sites of disease against a background of excellent control, I think you can really consider that kind of the one that got away. And maybe if you you really hit it hard and just take care of the little bit that's left behind that that you may be able to cure patients, but even short of that, if you just postpone a relapse by three years, it's not not for nothing. So I think great to hope for that. But even if you fall short, you know, if you're reaching for the stars, you'll at least hit the ceiling. And I think that this is a setting where I, I think that uh, it makes sense for one or two, maybe three, maybe five. I mean, it depends on on how long you go, because if you just have one scan and four lesions after that scan, that's not to say that you're not going to have twice as many on your next scan. It, it's different if you are following and three straight scans over nine months are showing just one or two spots, whether they are stable or growing by a millimeter or two. I mean, you've given a lot of time for the cancer process to declare itself as long as you can have some confidence that there's not a whole bunch of stuff right behind this that you can see, I think that makes sense. So the longer you go, uh, kind of giving the cancer the chance to declare itself as multifocal behaving or unifocal or bifocal behaving, then, you know, there, I think you'd have much more confidence that you can get ahead of it. I think it even makes sense also for, uh, I, I treat a lot of patients with multifocal, what was previously called bronchioalveolar carcinoma, or, or it's now multifocal adenocarcinoma, but it can be pretty slow growing. And this is a setting where if someone may have three lung nodules, I'm not sure that that systemic therapy is necessarily the way to go. If you're seeing those and you the patient has come in and they've been following these nodules for two years and they've all grown by a millimeter or two in that time, even if you biopsy it and show their cancer, it's behaving in a way that could be a problem in 40 years. But you know, you might be able to really do well just by spot welding with a little radiation. So I think it it does need some nuanced consideration of of local therapy when it looks like what's growing is growing at a a clinically meaningful rate but b against a background that is really well controlled and so i i just think that the more of those lesions you have the the less the oligo concept applies because you know having four growing lesions is getting pretty close to just not not oligo but just metastatic yeah, you know, that that's such an important point, uh, and, and it makes a lot of sense. You can't just rush somebody into consolidated radiation uh, immediately after you see a response. I mean, the only thing that's going to tell you until our scans get better, and who knows if it's even possible, the only way you can tell if there's micrometastatic disease out there is is to allow the cancer time to declare itself, like you said. So, I really like that explanation. 
I do think that in the not too distant future, looking at circulating tumor DNA over time is going to be, you know, we're going to be using it pre and post-op. We're going to be using it after chemo radiation and as an, as an earlier ongoing indicator along with scans to help supplement. So if someone had, you know, readily detectable microscopic disease and two or three metastases, I would be far less enthusiastic than if they had very little or no blood-based signal for, for circulating DNA. Yeah. Molecular monitoring, just like, uh, just like Vivek was talking about earlier with our CML parallel. Uh, it's a, that's a cool frontier. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. And, and really what it seems like is we can use each patient as their own control for saying, what is your cancer going to do? How does your cancer behave? And if we have stability of one lesion over several, several scans when they're getting systemic treatment for their metastatic disease, that makes sense to say that that's a good candidate to consider this consolidative radiation approach. And that's, you know, I'm definitely going to store that one away in my head is that we just have to look at each patient, you know, each patient's different, each patient's cancer may behave slightly differently. And, you know, no two adenocarcinomas are, are equal, as we found out with all of these, you know, molecular mutations and the clonal evolution of these cancers as well is likely to take take a part and that, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how we monitor these patients with circulating tumor DNA in the future. I think that's going to be a great, important nuance that, you know, it's taken a long time to clarify. When I went into the field, we said all the time to patients, you know, the horse is out of the barn. There's no such thing as a little metastatic, just like a little bit pregnant, but that's not quite right. That metastatic is a spectrum and there are some patients with exceptionally indolent disease. The engine behind it is very slow. It's much less multifocal or has a you know much lower proclivity to spread than others. So seeing this nuance that you're going to be experiencing over the decades of your careers is is going to really refine our approach so that you know we don't have categorical rules of how to treat everything metastatic. On to our to our next question though, you know, a lot of the data and a lot of stuff that we've been talking about again in this chemo, chemo IO world talks about giving just IO in patients that have PDL1 greater than 50%. Do you ever give chemo with IO in patients greater than 50%? Yes. Uh, and in fact, quite frequently, I would say there's no clear best answer to this. They're competing standards. Uh, the data from Keynote 024, which was the first study to show that uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy was superior to chemo in high PDL1 was unequivocally positive. It's maintained that over time. It was impressive and you know led to an instant change in our approach because starting weeks after that presentation, we had the FDA approval and it was adopted very quickly. And we had to do PDL1 testing in the initial workup before we didn't uh, necessarily. I mean, second line therapies you could give irrespective of PDL1. And that that was obviated when you needed to know from the first day of treatment what the PDL1 status was. So we never look back. I mean, there's we have an approval for atezolizumab, we have an approval for semiplumab. They're just lateral moves to me. They're not wrong, they're just not better. Um, but we also have data with. Uh, chemo and Pembro and various other regimens that have been tested in high PDL1. Uh, and we've seen that, say, chemo Pembro, whether for squame or non-squame, uh, the benefit 
incremental benefit of adding Pembro is very strong uh, with in the high PDL one as well as in low or even negative PDL one. I think that's a point that should be underscored because some people think that chemoimmuno is not the way to go for negative PDL one. That's not true. They they get an incremental benefit that's very very compelling for Pembro added to chemo even in PDL10 it's just that those patients have lower response rates from chemo or chemo pembro than the patients with high PDL1 but what you get for that patient is going to be better but to get back to the question of high PDL1 uh there's a few nuances here one is that uh the the folks Marco Wad and various others at uh uh, Justin Gaynor and, and others and at uh, Dana-Farber and Memorial Sloan Kettering have kind of pooled data together. And we've seen from some other groups that very high PDL one of 90% or higher is different from 50 to 80 or 89%. Uh, the semiplomab data in Empower01 uh, was also supportive of that concept that there's a difference and very high PDL1 is extremely likely to respond to immunotherapy and uh and less so if you're in the 50 60 70% range not to say it's bad but so i look at that and i look at the patient and their scans if they have a very high cancer burden a lot of symptoms if they had a ct in the er three weeks ago and the PET scan at the end of their workup shows a doubling of the cancer in that interval, I'm concerned when a patient comes in and I've seen them two or three times before we start and every week they're losing weight and more pain. That's somebody who I'm worried that, you know, we only have one shot on goal and you can't afford to be wrong. If you, if you do guess wrong, I mean, say the Pembro monotherapy has a response rate of 45% in Keynote 024. Well, that means that more than half the time they aren't. Um, and you can afford to guess wrong if the patient isn't that symptomatic and they just have some pleural nodules, but their performance status is excellent. If they progress through Pembro, you can give chemo after. But if they're riddled with disease and losing weight every two weeks uh, and in pain, uh, you don't want them to come back in a wheelchair uh, by the time you get another scan and realize that your your immunotherapy is not working. So those are some of the factors I use. And I think it's really just a, a question of the symptomatology of the patient, the concern for over-treating versus under-treating. I mean, every time you give chemo-immuno, you may be over-treating. And in a patient with pdl one of 90% and asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic and plural studying, I'd be thrilled to not give them ongoing chemo, uh, not just for four cycles, but maintenance pemetrexid for the next X years. Uh, if that, if the pembrolizumab was doing the heavy lifting the whole time and, and the, the pemetrexid is just along for the ride. So I don't want that, but I don't want to miss the chance. Uh, and so that's what I look at and talk about with the patient is, you know, are, are we at risk for the, us getting behind the cancer and and the cancer progressing too quickly if we guess wrong. So those are some of the factors, but 
I don't have an all or none approach of I always give Pembro or I always give chemo Pembro. I th- I individualize to the patient. I think that either is by the by the data and a very appropriate acceptable answer. I think it's best to uh, to individualize somewhat. And I think it's a good reminder for us too, uh, as as trainees, that different medications, so chemo or a targeted agent or or IO, are going to have different times of onset where we're going to start to see those effects of treatment. So as you're alluding to, someone that's more symptomatic, maybe uh, giving them chemotherapy to get a faster response might be might be more appropriate. Is that safe to say? I'm not as convinced. There is some of that element that immunotherapy can take a while to work and maybe, but I've seen some very fast, extremely gratifying immunotherapy responses. I'm not sure if the shapes of the curves just has more to do with when you give chemo and immunotherapy, you're giving two totally different modalities of therapy and you independently, at least additively, if not synergistically, increase your chances. If the cancer was going to respond to immunotherapy, great. If it was just going to respond to chemo, great. But you you basically increase your chances of getting a response by giving both modalities at once. Now, you kind of blow blow everything up front. So I don't necessarily want to front load everybody. But, uh, but I, I do think... Uh, yeah, maybe there is an element of if you need a fast response, include chemo. But but I think of it more just like I've increased my chances by giving t- twice the modalities, uh, the two different platforms, instead of putting all of my bet on immunotherapy. I, I really like that explanation. I think this holds true for so much in cancer. And a lot of patients ask me this question. They say, what are the chances that I am going to get a response or benefit from this chemo? And often I'm telling them that we're not talking 100%. We're not talking 90% of people I give this to get a response. We give a lot of side effects and may not get that response. We just can't predict who is going to respond and who won't. That makes so much sense that we're just cumulative, additively increasing the chance of response because you're attacking it from two different angles. And yeah, that just makes a lot of sense to me. What you need to do is we do try to think about knowing that we have a limited number of tools uh, do we want to spread them longitudinally or do we want to just concentrate everything up front? Because if you're not confident you're going to get to step three, give step you know two and three up front with step one. But if you think that immunotherapy is enough to do the job because the patient has very high PDL1 or is not that symptomatic, I'd be inclined as a general rule, I think uh, whether you're talking about uh, immunotherapy or s- starting when to start systemic therapy or just watch patients with extremely indolent disease, whether that's CLL or indolent lung cancer, I ask, what's the least I need to do to keep the patient's cancer under control for the next X period of time, six months, 12 months, whatever. That may be, I need to give you know immunotherapy and that's the best chance or chemoimmunotherapy, but it may be this patient has had their cancer barely progress over a year of surveillance, I don't think we need to do anything right now. And I think that it's important for uh, fellows and, uh, you know, all of your listeners to, to know that you don't want to over under treat anybody. And sometimes close attentive observation is, is the best approach and just leaving things in your pocket for later. So 
I want to shift gears to talking a little bit about driver mutations in the time we have left. The, the patient we've been talking about earlier, uh, let's say she's got the same presentation, some uh, multi- multifocal left lung disease, metastases to the brain to adrenal gland. This time, let's say her testing comes back with an EGFR mutation in exon 19. We discussed a little bit uh, sort of the use of osimertinib based on the phase three flora trial in a previous episode, and definitely go check that out if you haven't uh, listened to it yet. This patient, let's say she got started on osimertinib and had a great response. She had a CR in the brain and a PR to her systemic disease elsewhere. And she maintains that stable partial response for about two years, but then unfortunately progresses with worsening um, liver lesions now. Would you repeat molecular testing at the time of progression? Is that something you're kind of always wanting to do? And if you do see sort of another targetable mutation uh, on that testing, would you want to treat with both TKIs, keep her on the EGFR, thinking that maybe it's keeping other disease under control and then also attacking the the new mutation that you found? How do you work with that situation? We're still learning about this. And I mean, very actively, very currently. And in fact, um, we are just just coming back from ESMO, uh, which was, you know, in the last few days, where there was a presentation by a colleague, uh, Julian Mezers, uh, from France, who presented data with the MET inhibitor tapotinib combined with osimertinib in patients with MET amplification uh, as an identified mechanism of resistance with um, with EGFR mutation positive lung cancer. One of the challenges with MET as a target is that every company and every trial has a different definition of what comprises, you know, overexpression or or amplification. They had theirs, and that was actually able to be done from tissue biopsy or blood-based testing. And with their definition, it thirty-six uh, percent of the patients that whose tumor tissues that was screened was positive for MET, and when they gave a combination of tapotinib with osimertinib, the response rate was fifty-four percent in their patients who were followed at least nine months. So that's that's really impressive, but uh, that's still early work. Both of these agents are commercially available, but they're not available as a combination. I think if you happen to do molecular testing and find this, it would probably be covered, but don't know for sure. Uh, But it's definitely something that we've only known about for a few days now. And otherwise, we've had pretty mixed data on the best treatment approaches. Uh, We've got uh, data with some other targeted therapies, patritumab, deruxtecan, and the combination of uh, amivantamab and lazertinib in EGFR mutation positive acquired resistance, they have response rates that are very similar to each other in the high 30s ranges, but they don't obviously differ that much based on, you know, met expression and, and um, or, or other factors or other mechanisms of of resistance. And so while just about all academic oncologists have, at least as a matter of principle and faith, favored doing molecular testing on repeat biopsies, uh, we haven't, that's not a standard of care right now. It's not something that clearly 
influences, at least up to now, how you treat. I mean, again, if you're going to give the same treatment and you get the same results, regardless of the of of the mechanism, do you really need to do that testing? Um, and also at at ESMO, uh, there was another presentation by Zosha Piotrowska at Mass General, who's very dedicated, she and her group, and and like many, to molecular testing. They looked at pre- and post-paired biopsies, and, and one of the key findings was less than 40% of the patients in the trial enrolled for this had were able to get paired biopsies done. And these were some of the most motivated patients at the centers absolutely dedicated to doing this. So I think that how easy that's going to be to do tissue-based testing, at least, in the VA system or U.S. oncology and the broader community, I I think it's a tall order. And um, the sensitivity of liquid-based testing is an issue. So I, I think this is going to continue to be a work in progress. As a concept, I think it's always attractive. But as I said, it's it's challenging to do even in the centers that are wholly dedicated to, to the, the concept. And at this point, it's not an irrefutable standard of care. It's uh, you know a nice thing to know. But I think that that's where things are going, kind of like circulating tumor DNA. I think we're, we'll get there. And I don't think it's way off in the distant future, but it's a little still just out of our reach. Along the lines, as we're talking about these driver mutations and, and giving, let's say, in this patient who got Ocimertinib, and one of the things that we emphasized in a previous episode was that when we think about the newer generations of these driver mutations, just one of the goal in general for these oral pills is to get good CNS penetration. So as you know, as we got to Ocimertinib, one of the amazing things about it was the ability to control CNS disease. If we have a patient like this who now has progression of disease but had good control and they got a CR of their CNS metastasis, and let's say that you know we, we didn't do this idea of adding another uh, molecular mutation and, and adding another TKI, and you know we didn't go through that, but we said, hey, we need to now put this patient on chemotherapy. How do you go about thinking about continuing that oral TKI, stopping it? And we, we've read about a flare phenomenon when you can stop some of these TKIs. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's actually something that was brought up uh, by Dan in the last uh, question that I didn't really uh, get to very much, and the CNS. And I think that this does come up a lot. Patients with EGFR mutation positive or ALK positive or ROS, many other targets have a predisposition to relapse in the brain. Uh, that may in part be because people are living so long that that's kind of a, a vulnerability that we never saw when people did not live two, three, four, five years. Uh, but there seems to be, in many cases, a tropism for, for the CNS, too. Uh, and certainly some of the second and third generation ALK inhibitors and osimertinib and that, that we didn't really worry about this in the past because you couldn't. It was like worrying about the weather. It was just not in our control. But when you have therapies that have fabulous intracranial activity, you that becomes a priority, uh, certainly over alternatives that don't have it. And it is an issue when someone has progression on osimertinib today. And uh, it, it, the current standard of care is chemo. Uh, maybe with immunotherapy. We don't know yet, but 
particularly if we're thinking about adding the immunotherapy and there's, you know, kind of mixed signals about that, uh, that becomes a real conundrum when you've had a patient with CNS disease that's been treated just with osimertinib. They've never had local therapy and their disease control is probably totally predicated on it. Because of that, in a patient with a history of CNS disease, many of us, I think most of us, would be inclined to continue osimertinib and give uh, and give chemotherapy concurrently. And I think the same principle applies to electinib or lorlatinib or something. But these are not well studied. This is all based on a compelling rationale and our best judgment. And at the same time, these agents, the ALK inhibitors and osimertinib, have problematic and potentially life-threatening toxicities with immunotherapy. And uh, so we do need to make some tough choices, perhaps, of, you know, if we want, uh, there have been some some data, uh, chemo plus immunotherapy plus VEGF inhibitor, the Empower 150 trial and the Orient 31 trial, uh, which is with scintillamab and a, and a uh, bevacizumab biosimilar uh, out of China, that both show better results in in patients with at least EGFR mutation positive acquired resistance uh, when they get the immunotherapy added to chemo and the VEGF inhibitor uh, potentially benefiting as well. Well, if you do that, you really can't safely give the targeted therapy. So that's a long way of saying we don't know, uh, but many smart, thoughtful people who, who dream about EGFR resistance or ALK resistance um, are committed to the idea of at least a subset of their patients, particularly those with CNS disease, uh, continuing on the the targeted therapy to control the the intracranial compartment, um, and and maybe with an idea as well. And you got to the flare question that we do sometimes see this. So there is an idea. I, I've sometimes said to, to patients that you know if your car has brakes that are failing you don't take your foot off the brake as you're going down the hill because, you know, bad brakes are better than no brakes. And, and um, chances are not bad at all that, that there's still a clone, a subset of your cancer cells that are responsive to, to targeted therapy. We might be treating that with the, with the um, targeted therapy ongoing while treating the resistant portion with, chemo, but we just need to be mindful of what we can and can't give safely together. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And and it's really interesting to me that, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that with EGFR and ALK mutations, we're not generally thinking about immune therapy, but there is data out there. And, and like you said, you know, there's no good answer to this necessarily, but that as you have a, and I want to make sure I got this right, as you have uh, an acquired mechanism of resistance to EGFR that then immunotherapy can be on the table. Is that fair to say? I think that's still, I wouldn't want to put too fine a point on it here that that's, that's more speculative and reasonable, Got but it. that's Got not, it. that's not really operational in prime time for everyone at home. It's, 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 that. it's, <laughs> it's a concept. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a forward thinking approach, yeah. but I would also make one other point, And that is that, it's important to bear in mind that these driver mutations can't all be painted with one brush, that EGFR seems to often respond somewhat to immunotherapy and ALK 
it seems to be way more disappointing and almost universally ineffective. So the other thing is that that many patients, certainly with ALK and maybe with EGFR, a lot of them have high PDL1. That's a fake out. It's you do not want to give, don't lead with immunotherapy in someone with an ALK rearrangement and a high PDL1 or an EGFR mutation and, and high PDL1. Uh, very often those patients when you do give immunotherapy, whether that's first or sixth line, have no benefit at all from it. It just does not have the same meaning as someone without a driver mutation. But again, different driver mutations are different. KRAS responds very well to immunotherapy as a general rule, at least as well as wild type. And BRAF V600E also can respond very well to immunotherapy. But not so much ALK, ROS, et cetera. So they they are not all in the exact same category here. Okay, listeners. Well, that was a phenomenal discussion with our with our guest, Dr. West. Dr. West, thank you again so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, no, it was a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, just I, I think it's a valuable a valuable skill to remind myself uh, to talk with people who don't eat, sleep, live, and breathe lung cancer every day. I think that's really worth um, talking, not just to, you know, not just preaching to the choir, but to people who, um, who are, are learning this. And I think it's, to me, it's gratifying to remind myself, uh, you know, how much progress there's been and, and uh, to see that other people are as interested as those of us who dedicated our lives to lung cancer. And I think the coolest part for me, not nearly as as uh, as momentous as that, but as a as a fellow, just you know, from where we started with this series, even I've learned so much from the beginning. And the fact that I can understand your train of thought in this very complex, nuanced discussion, um, I think is I think is huge. And I think that um, our hope is that our listeners are also going to be able to do the same. So l- listeners, that's all the time that we have. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Bye,